When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Cavalry Audio. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to Forever Young. I'm Dr. John Lakey. And I'm Dr. Payman Daniel. And thank you so much for spending time with us. We really appreciate all of the questions that were sent. And so this episode, we're going to do something a little special. We're going to introduce a concept here uh, called Ask the Doctor. And periodically, what we'll do is we're going to go through all of the emails that are sent to podcast at beverlyhillsmd.com. And all of those questions that stand out, we'll go ahead and answer those. And hopefully one of these is yours. And again, if, if you want that email one more time, it's just podcast at Beverly Hills MD, like medical doctor.com. Send us your questions. And hopefully one of these weeks, we'll pick your question and answer it. You know, I have to admit, I, I was surprised at the overwhelming response of all of the messages that we got positive. Uh, you know, we love, uh, you know, all the fans that are, are, are dedicated. Um, and uh, some interesting questions. Some are absolutely hilarious. Yes. And others, I think, uh, you know, it can be very serious. And they're for people who really want to learn more. And so I'm glad that we're teaching you something. Hopefully uh, you trust us with your uh, your your next uh, hour and we'll go ahead and uh, and get started. And make sure you listen on in because we will pick your question one of these days <laughs> and we'll answer it and we we'll don't call want you, you to miss it. We'll definitely call you out. So, so here we go. We've got questions that literally range from skincare usage to surgical procedures to am I a candidate? Uh, you know, and so- what, Some guy what, even asked who cuts his hair. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, like I said, some of these questions are uh, are hilarious. So we stuck with some of these first that I thought were pretty interesting. And um, the first one comes from Kelly from Indianapolis. And Hi, Indianapolis. <laughs> hey, Andy. You know, um, you know, the interesting part is this was really in regards to overall skincare. And so, you know, Kelly says, um, I use a, a, a regular regimen on a daily basis, both morning and night, um, but not sure if I'm doing the right thing. What actually makes a good moisturizer? Great, Excellent great question. question. Great question, Kelly. You know, listen, I think that um, there, there are multiple opinions on this. And the one thing that I can say is um, moisturizers differ depending on your age group. And the idea is if you can find one, you know, one perfect moisturizer that can hit all age groups should have the following properties. One, it should be light. 
don't have to have a lot of sense or anything like that. But if you do, it, it helps. I mean, you know, if you like that, um, you know, heavy perfumes and things like that uh, sometimes cause irritation. To, Se- to you and others. <laughs> Very true. Secondly, uh, a good moisturizer should have a good active ingredients. And so you can look at some of the percentages. So things like hyaluronic acid, vitamin C, um, you know, if you want some botanical-based uh, compounds, you can use some of those just because uh, they have intrinsic brighteners to them. And the last thing is I would say you want to avoid something that's heavy silicone-based. Here's here's what I'll say, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, and this is my opinion, and Dr. Danaport can give his. Um, it doesn't have to be the most expensive line that's out there. It really doesn't. You know, La Mer is a very expensive brand. It's saltwater-based. Of course, some of the properties make sense because salt draws in water. So you use that on your skin and it tends to pull moisture from your body to the skin. And so that obviously makes sense. Um, For me, I think a good moisturizer, and you can try three different ones. A good moisturizer you'll put on your skin and 10 minutes later, your skin will feel dry because the majority of the ingredients are absorbed into the skin as best they can be. If your skin is still very greasy, then it means it's probably heavy silicone in nature and it's sitting on top of the skin and probably not doing a whole lot. Now, other people may say, well, geez, uh, you know, silicone strips for wounds can be a good thing, you know, for scars. It's a different property, uh, trapping in moisture, uh, you know, that's reorganizing collagen, something that's a, a little bit different. What I don't want to do is apply something that's going to clog pores, not allow the skin to breathe. So, you know, for me, obviously, I'm biased. I think our uh, regenerative rose stem cell moisturizer is great, light scent, uh, very light to apply. I use it twice a day. And, uh, you know, if, uh, 10 minutes later, your skin feels relatively dry. You want to make sure that your your moisturizer is not comedogenic, basically meaning that it's causing you to have um, pores, increased pores and acne. Um, and, and everything Dr. Lakey just said is, is really exactly what I'm going to basically reiterate. So I'm going to spare you the couple of minutes. But I will say, stay away from real greasy stuff. You know, the stuff that's super, super um, – leaves your face very shiny after – Chances are it's not getting into where it needs to. Um, you want it to absorb, like like John just said, and make you feel silky. You don't want it to look like you're glowing from the outside. That's not what a moisturizer is supposed to do. Um, really, in, it looks in, like in someone sprayed you in the face. Exactly, and sometimes, yeah. honestly, it, it's it doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be a real simple. I like the one we have. I think it smells really nice because it's got a slight rose scent, um, and most people are okay with the rose scent, um, and and it's not greasy at all. So to me, I stick with ours. But find one that really works, and 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 again, locks in instead of stays out, if that makes sense. All right. Well, listen. Thanks, Kelly. Hey, this is, thank you, Kelly. This one is Rosa from Phoenix. Hi, Rosa. I am considering surgery. What makes a candidate for a BBL, which is a Brazilian butt lift? Uh, and this is, again, this is a hot topic. We've This has been increasingly popular over the last several years. You and I both don't fully understand um, you know, the, the allure or fascination <laughs> to having the biggest butt on the block. But um, the idea is 
you answer for me. What makes what makes a good candidate for a BBL? So a couple things. First of all, realistic expectations depending on who you're going to. If you come to our practice, um, we like everything very subtle. So if you're looking for a very large buttocks, if you're looking to 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 really kind of hold up traffic, um, probably not the right guys to come to. Um, probably need to find somebody who's who's gonna give you that exaggerated look for first and foremost. Second thing is you need to have fat. You need to have some fat on your body somewhere. Generally speaking, around the flanks and the back and the abdomen are the best places because when you sculpt that area, then the buttocks actually pops by itself without putting putting any fat in. And then adding some fat makes it even better. The big no-no to to having surgery, um, any surgery, is if you are not medically you know, optimized. Meaning if you have medical problems that um, will make you a bad candidate for an elective procedure, um, heart disease, uncontrolled diabetes, high blood pressure, anything, you know, arrhythmias, previous surgery, things that um, most people will tell you, hey, elective cosmetic surgery holds too high a risk. So therefore don't have it. That's the first thing. Second thing is um, if your BMI is too high, that's one thing we really kind of draw the line. Because what ends up happening is- And BMI's body mass index just means it's height to weight ratio. Yeah. And and it, you're setting yourself up for more complications, um, more than anything. Uh, and we know this. This is What we're saying here, this is not some stuff we just made up. This is scientific research that shows that as the BMI goes up higher, you have higher complication rates. Um, and then, you know, the, the third thing is, are we going to- give you the look you're going to look for. Because the last thing you want to do is have surgery and then not get that exact look you're going for. Um, Did I hit everything? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it's important to impress upon people that what you had mentioned earlier, sometimes that excess stored fat that's in the, the love handle region or the flanks, by just coring that out, it automatically gives a better curve to the buttock. Um, the second thing is, you know, in my opinion, I would say more JLo, less Nicki Minaj. You want something that's going to be shapely and that's going to stand the test of time. And the third thing is you have to find someone who is well-trained, board certified. You know, one of the best in the biz is our friend Ashkan Gavami. And, uh, you know, he's written book chapters on this as part of the, uh, you know, the task force for safety protocols. And, uh, you know, we learn all of our stuff from him. But, it, it, you know, you really want someone who's well-trained. Look at their before and after. See if that's what the, the look that you're going for. Because ultimately, if they're showcasing that, that's what you're going to get. And don't look at the before and afters on Instagram on the table. Because anyone can make it look good right away. Mm-hmm. You want to look at a, someone's results a year later. And that's why when you bring up a guy like Gavami, um, who has a library of hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of people with this type of procedure, and he can show you long-term results, look for someone like that. Mm -hmm. Because I think then your satisfaction rate will be higher. Now, with that said, the BBL or Brazilian butt lift is a procedure that may need to be done again later. Keep that in mind. We talked about this in the past. Remember, fat transfer doesn't last forever. Now, does it mean you're going to be disfigured five or 10 years later? No, it just means your buttocks may be a little bit smaller than it was. So if you like how it looked initially and it starts getting smaller over time, then you may need to have another fat transfer five, 10, 15 years later. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Rosa. Uh, and hopefully that answered your question.
This is Dr. John Lakey at Forever Young. Hope you're enjoying the show. Dr. Daniel Poor and I will be back after a quick break. The next one comes from Jen from Boise, Idaho. Uh, Word on the street is you and Dr. Daniel Poor often work together. You are able to do more surgery in less time. How much is too much surgery at once? That is an excellent question. Jen, congratulations. So the idea, you know, listen, I'll give my opinion and Dr. Daniel Poor can give his. We often match surgeries. Uh, we look at the overall picture, and it's really more on how, you know, how debilitating something can be. If someone comes in and they want a rhinoplasty with a breast augmentation, completely fine. If someone comes in, they want a facelift and a tummy tuck, completely fine. As long as you have at least one out of these three things, in my opinion, you have your legs to support you, you have your core to sit up and get down, and you have your arms to help, uh, you know, I think that you'll be okay. So it means, can we do 360-degree liposuction with fat transfer and all kinds of things? Yes, as long as we don't have large incisions on any one of those areas at the same time. Um, What I mean by this is, you know, if I'm planning on doing liposuction of the arms and the legs and a tummy tuck uh, and a BBL, the idea is I'm knocking out the legs for you to stand up, the core for you to get up and down, and the arms to assist you with because of the large incision on the abdomen. I would probably stage some of those procedures. Now, if it's just liposuction, Ah, you can, you know, lipo from head to toe because I know that I'm not as concerned about being ginger, uh, you know, around a very large incision. Um, If you have your faculties about you, meaning, uh, you know, you we're doing some lipo on the lower trunk and we're doing a facelift up top or rhinoplasty, those are all combination procedures that can easily be done. Again, you need to have at least one of those three things, Um, you know, your arms, your legs, or your core, uh, otherwise, you know, it's, it's going to be a miserable time for you. You know, it's a great question. And, and, and um, this is where sometimes complications happen. When people think they can kind of do everything and, and, and sometimes do too much. And, and the whole thought of Kanye West's mom, and it, it, it was in the news. And it could have been that there was too much surgery. With that said, Dr. Lakey and I trained um, together at a, at a center of excellence for bariatric surgery. And we had people that lost 300 pounds. 400 pounds, 200 pounds. And they came to us and they wanted to have everything done from their neck to their arms, to their legs, to their back, to their butt, to their front, to everything you can imagine. And that's when we really learned exactly what Dr. Lakey said, that you have to break areas up so life after surgery is doable. So you can get up and go to the bathroom. So you can get yourself out of bed, things like that. Can we do a lot of surgery at the same time and probably do it under a certain amount of time? Absolutely. But we don't want you to be miserable. We want you to be able to do regular activities like go to the bathroom and sit at dinner and do things like that. So normally we'll cut things up. If it's massive weight loss, yes, we'll do breast and arms together. If it's, you know, if it's breaking things up between him and I, which we do 
very, very frequently. He'll do a nose and I'll do a breast at the same time. Totally fine. Normally, we don't do surgery for more than approximately six hours. The, the amount of work that him and I can get done in six hours, you'd be surprised. So most of the time, our mommy makeovers are what we do. We'll do 360 lipo. We'll do some sort of breast augmentation lift and a tummy tuck. That'll take us anywhere between four and six hours. And we find that to be sufficiently enough for a person. Um, and the other thing we always do is individualize each person. A young, healthy 30-year-old is going to be a little different than a 75-year-old. Mm -hmm. So imagine... Um, yes, we can do a lot of surgery and I think we can do a lot of different body parts, but it all depends on um, how, what type of, of state of health you're in, how young you are, medical history, and also the areas of the body. Mm -hmm. Thank you, boys. Great, great question, Jen. Uh, next one is Karen from uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Do you ever say no to a patient? Sheboygan. This is a, I'm giving a shout out for my uh, my parents' hometown, or me, I should say, where, where my parents live now and my sister. Um, that's a great question. Do you ever say no? And I, I'll at let least, you start with that one. At least a few times a week. Definitely. Um, here's the thing, and, 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 I'll, and I'll, I'll never forget this as long as I live. In training, they sat with us and told us it's better to say no than to do something that, number one, you don't think the person's gonna be happy. Number two, you don't think the results are gonna be as good as you think they're gonna be. And number three, if it's not the right operation. So those types of things can really kind of not only be a detriment to yourself, but also for the patient. And these are things that if, if, if you've got someone that's got incredibly unrealistic expectations, you have to take a step back and say, hey, listen, you can't do it. As much as we think we can do just about anything, we also realize that there is a line that we have to draw with everybody and everything that people want to do. And if we don't think it's possible, then we don't think it's possible. Um, and, and we see this a lot. And, 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 and it really helped when, when we trained in a place where we had massive weight loss patients because some of these patients, you know, they've lost all this weight and they come to you and they bring you a picture of a Victoria's Secret model. And they say, I want to look like this now. I can't do it. I mean, personally, I'm like, listen, it's impossible. You yeah, don't want to- not a magician. Exactly. And you don't want to let, you know, you don't want to discourage people, but at the same time, you don't want to set yourself up and the patient up for failure. Yeah, I agree with you. I think one of the best lines I've ever heard was a smart surgeon knows when to operate and a wise surgeon knows when not to operate. And uh, early on in practice, obviously, you think you're the smartest person in the world and you're trying to please everyone. And you soon learn that there are some individuals you just can't. And, and whether or not you uh, misdiagnosed the issue, you came up with a different plan, or simply you just didn't set expectations or the patient had unrealistic expectations. Now, with more experience, um, you know, again, Dr. Danieport laid these things out. You set appropriate expectations. If a patient bristles, then you know that's not a candidate for you. Um, you know, if someone is unrealistic with the amount of surgery that can be performed, then it's, that's not for you. You know, I've had multiple people that come in for rhinoplasty and, you know, the pictures they give me. Uh, you know, someone's nose is completely looking, uh, you know, in, in a different direction than their faces um, and say, all right, this is the nose I want. And they'll show, you know, some uh, supermodel. <clears throat> the idea is you're working, you, you have to give the best possible result for the existing structure of that nose. Same thing with the body. You have to give the best possible outcome for the existing structure of that individual. And so sometimes certain things just simply aren't possible. Yes, I saw a person yesterday 
She told me she forgot how many times she's had surgery on her breasts. Mm-hmm. That's how many times she's had surgery. Mm-hmm. She took her clothes off and put on a gown and showed me her breast. And then she showed me a picture of herself from when she was 20. And she was 50 something. She goes, I want to look like this. And I flat out just said, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, that's ridiculous. I heard you're the best. Now, you can be really good at what you do and still not be able to fix some problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, you know, sometimes it takes a lot of experience. So be wary if, if you, if, and that's one thing I tell everyone that comes through this door, and I highly recommend this to everyone who's listening. If you're going to get plastic surgery, see two people, see three mm-hmm. people, see who you vibe with more. Make sure that the plans are relatively the same. If one guy is doing something that he says that he can take care of and everyone else is like, whoa, you don't think, I don't think we can do this. There's something wrong there. Yeah, yeah. It's not that he's superhuman <laughs> so, and, and, or she's superhuman. Know, absolutely. And, and mm. there's, other, there's other times we do draw the line. And obviously we talked about medical conditions and, and sometimes age um, and other factors. There are times where I come in and, 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 and I'm ha- I have a, a man and a woman that come in and the man's pushing the woman to get very large implants. And you can tell she's a little hesitant. And she's like, well, I think he likes that. Well, ultimately, it's her decision. Mm -hmm. And that's the time where I kind of step back and say, hey, this is going to be a big problem here. Um, There's a a lot of ethical and moral choices that we make as plastic surgeons. And it's not just all about just doing every surgery we can. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Thank you, Karen. Love to Wisconsin. Uh, This next one. Um, How close? This is from Annie from Ithaca, New York. How close can you make someone look like a celebrity? I thought this was an interesting thing. In the age of social media, where people are using filters now more than ever, you, I can't even tell you the amount of patients that come in here and I look at the social platform on what they look like there or what they portray and then how they actually look in real life. And you say, my God, this is such a lie. And uh, it's giving people false hope or, or, you know, misleading them. And then this is a, a platform where people are saying, oh, this is how you're supposed to look. Well, I'll tell you, 50% of the people who are on there, uh, you know, you wouldn't even recognize them when you see them in person. I know you can uh, attest to that as well. Absolutely. Um, very common. So how close can you make someone look like a celebrity? <laughs> Listen, Unless you have a similar structure, uh, you know, it's virtually impossible. Now, I remember in the, was it the 90s, The Swan, uh, early 2000s, something like that, there was a show called The Swan where they would come in and there was a plastic surgeon, there was uh, an orthognathic surgeon, uh, there was a cosmetic dentist, you know, and they basically transformed people. Now, you want to undergo huge surgeries where we're manipulating facial bones and uh, with plates and screws, and you know we're completely, uh, you know, redoing the structure of the face. Different ball game. You can probably get as close as you possibly can to at least having similar structure. But for everyday plastic surgery, the idea is you can contour. Again, I always go back to the fact you're you're. You're manipulating the existing structure. So you can only, you, you know, if you're born with really thick nasal tip skin, as an example, and you're trying to look at Megan Fox's nose, well, it's just never going to happen. I don't care who the surgeon is. You could be the best surgeon in the world. You're never going to get that result because of the inherent thickness of skin. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's guys, it's impossible to, to 
there's so many days where I have someone come in and show me a set of lips, for example. And they say, will you inject my lips and have them look like this? And I'm like, I can't do that. Your lips are completely different than those lips. Or for example, breasts. They'll come in and say, I want Emily Rajkowski's breasts, but yet they have two different breasts and one is tubers. <laughs> now, you know, it, it, again, like we said, we're not magicians. We can make people look really good, but it's difficult to make one person look like someone else. Like, I'd love to look like John, <laughs> but it's impossible. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to have to take what, I, what, you, what I'm born with. Now, now, and that's, and that's, now can we improve your look, make it look amazing? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But to make your, the shape of your eyes, for example, the same as Megan Fox's, it's it it takes a lot of surgery and at the end of the day i think whoever's looking for things like that is ultimately going to be unhappy at the end because they're not going to reach that perfection that they're looking for mm-hmm. and again that's one thing that in plastic surgery that we really kind of talk to people there is no such thing as perfection we're just making you the best you that we possibly can. And there's nothing wrong with bringing inspiration photos. In fact, I appreciate that, especially, you know, it's funny, Dr. Daniel Port does a lot of breast surgery and uh, the patient will always say, ah, I don't want to be that big. And he'll say, okay, give me an inspiration photo. And they'll come in with double Ds and he'll say, okay, we are on two different pages here. Even though we have a 3D vector simulator, sometimes it's just a different thought process. Whereas with the nose, I love it. Some people will come in and they'll say, all right, is this possible? Or can I get as close to this as possible? Different ballgame. Um, you know, because we can either say, go over the things in the simulator and show what can and can't be done. So uh, inspiration photos, one thing, uh, you know, trying to look exactly like someone, it's an impossibility. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Annie. Uh, our next question is from Natasha from Louisville, Kentucky. Oh. Um, what are your thoughts on the fox eye procedure trend? Love it. You, uh, you talk about this because you do it and I don't. Well, yeah. I mean, the interesting part, um, so the fox eye is really where we take the outer aspect of the brow and the eye and move it in a an upward and outward fashion. So it kind of gives more of an exotic feel to the outer aspect of the eye. Um, what do I think about the procedure? I think this is a standard procedure that's been used for a long time. It's just now been coined the fox eye. Um, I think when done appropriately, it can look amazing, youthful, um, and can add that little exotic tinge um, or characteristic. But uh, um, when we're trying to overdo things or pull up too high or make it exaggerated, um, you know, listen, trends are exactly that, trends. They change. They're finite. So, you know, we may even see the trend of the Brazilian butt lift change. You know, after all these large butts, you know, it used to be that we placed large implants and now everybody's running to reduce them. Same thing's probably going to happen to the Brazilian butt lift. As they fall over the next five to 10 years, you know, we got to come up with another trend. Um, the fox eye is, again, this is based off of a standard procedure that's been done forever. It's called a temporal brow lift. Um, and so we've just kind of coined the phrase and some people have over-exaggerated that look. Um, I think, again, if done in uh, appropriately and tastefully, I think it can look absolutely amazing and youthful. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. 
the last thing we want to do is make everyone look the same. It, it doesn't make much sense. Now, does the Fox eye look nice on people? Absolutely. I think it's a nice procedure. And I've seen Dr. Lakey do it. I've actually filmed him do it. And, and, and it's, it's one of those very gratifying, really exotic looks for people. I don't think it applies to everyone, nor does any procedure apply for everyone. So I think that it's one of those things that, it, you know, when, when individualized, it can work really nicely for people. Hello, beautiful people. To celebrate the launch of Forever Young, we'd like to offer our listeners a special discount on our premium line of skincare products at beverlyhillsmd.com. Go to beverlyhillsmd.com and use the promo code foreveryoung20 to get 20% off your first order. That's beverlyhillsmd.com, promo code foreveryoung20. Please share, rate, and review on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be right back after this break. Now I got, you got any more? I do. I've got one one here. This is a question. All right. So we've got uh, Layla, and this is from Raleigh. Uh, this is Raleigh, North Carolina. And the question is, is it better to go above or below the muscle with breast implants? Great question. We're going to do a full podcast on breast augmentation. Mm-hmm. But just to answer this question, and, and you know, interestingly enough, if you would have asked me this five or six years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, the answer was always go under the muscle. And now the pendulum is strong, has swung to, again, what I said a second ago, individualizing each patient. So depends on what you need, depends on what you want, depends on what you're looking for, depends on you. So if you're an incredibly active person, um, the chances of wanting to put this implant under your muscle are going to be a little bit different than if you're not. If you're a trainer, if you work out a lot, if you're someone who's playing beach volleyball every weekend, um, you don't want to put it under the muscle because there's something called an animation deformity. And the animation deformity will actually show the, the implants will dance. So every time you flex your pec muscle, you can see the implant go up and down. And that's you know one of the dreaded things of putting an implant under the pectoralis muscle because it'll be obvious that you have an implant and we want to always keep people guessing. Um, on the other hand, if you have very thin skin and you have very little breast tissue, we need some sort of coverage. So the concept of having a, an implant under the muscle is this simple. A breast implant goes under the muscle because we want something to cover the implant so it's not obvious. The problem with putting an implant under the muscle is exactly what I said. You get something called animation. So if you have good thick skin, if you have relatively decent amount of breast tissue, putting an implant under the fascia or even above the muscle is completely a great option. It'll be very natural. No one will know you've ever had a breast augmentation. If you've got minimal breast tissue, very thin skin, even if you're active, I will always put it under the muscle. And the reason that it's different now and why I said that the pendulum is swung and now we're doing implants above and below, we're even doing breast cancer reconstruction above the muscle, is because the implants that are now made, the fully cohesive gummy bear implants, number one, have minimal rippling or a lot less than they did before. Number two, they have a much less capsular contracture rate, which means scarring around this implant is not as often as before and before, we were, th- we were taught that if you put the implant under the muscle, it made a big difference in your complication rate. Complication rates are the same. And I think that, you know, 
obviously you give the option to the person. And as a surgeon, I always tell people what I think is the best method for them. Awesome. Thank you, Layla. Thanks, uh, Layla. Uh, a bill from Omaha. What is too young for a rhinoplasty? Beautiful. A- excellent question. Uh, the, the answer to that, it's different for males and females. So obviously females undergo skeletal maturation uh, at an earlier age than males. So I would say for females, um, you know, the earliest I would consider would be 16. And usually that's accompanied by some type of breathing uh, issue. Um, Obviously, for most of these cases, you'd love to wait till 18. That way they're adults. They've gone through, you know, all of that, uh, the majority of their uh, uh, pubertal stages. For males, it's a little older. And so I would say 17 would be the earliest that I would consider. Doesn't mean there are other plastic surgeons that won't start when they're 15. And I would say there are always those outliers uh, in cases that can be candidates. And it's really, if someone's got a major obstructive defect, I completely understand. The whole goal is you're balancing making it through full skeletal maturity versus stunting skeletal growth by performing an operation. Anytime you do osteotomies, which is manipulating the nasal bones or breaking the nasal bones, um, you can cause facial uh, a stunt in facial growth. So you may see this in an individual that, let's say, got in a car accident when they were 12 and fractured some of the facial bones, that they may have more of a flat type face because of the fact that the their skeletal growth is stunted. So once there are a few characteristics, you know, usually if someone is on the fence, sometimes we can get x-rays that show, uh, you know, if they've made it through some skeletal maturity, but usually there are other secondary characteristics. So I would say 16 in females, 17 in males. Obviously I'd love to wait till uh, they're both 18. It's interesting because we'll do something that we do a lot of in this practice is that 17, 18 year old girl who is finishing high school, going to college, who gets a rhinoplasty and a breast reduction. And it's the perfect time. If you ask me, right around 18, right before they're going to college, because it really helps them with multiple things. But if it's any younger than that, like Dr. Lakey said, it can harm growth. Now, um, you know, rhinoplasty is very different than other parts, but we do that all the time. And I think it really helps um, in the confidence of these individuals. Um, doing it younger may cause some issues. And you bring up a good point. That would be the only other scenario where I would potentially um, consider doing it earlier. If someone is, you know, harshly being bullied and really has a physical you know, we would consider a defect of extremely large nose or something that is preventing that person from, you know, joining social gatherings, from being social, uh, you know, where it's actually changing a personality. That's another uh, reason to do it. So um, that would be another consideration. Thank you so much, Bill, for that question. Last one I have here, uh, Connie from Tallahassee. Tallahassee. Uh, How long does a facelift last? Hmm. You know, this is one of the most common questions that someone coming in for facial rejuvenation asks me. And I would say short answer, everybody always says eight to 10 years. But the long-winded answer is everyone ages at a different rate. What if I told you that I perform a face and neck lift, facial rejuvenation, eyelid surgery, brow lift, things like that. And what I do is I rewind the clock eight to 10 years everyone's going to age at a different rate. Then I say, all right, go. 
And some people go back to smoking. Some people go back to sitting in the sun. Some people decide they aren't going to do anything to maintain the quality of their skin. Some people don't use an adequate skincare regimen. Some people, uh, you know, decide that they aren't going to get facials or they wear makeup to bedtime. You know, there are so many different factors that play a role. Now, is it going to return exactly the way it was before at 10 years? No. Um, You know, again, but you are going to age as time progresses. Remember, I always said, you lose 1% per year of collagen and elastin. So over 10 years, you're going to lose an additional 10% of collagen and elastin. That's a significant amount. I don't care what kind of lift you do. Nothing is going to stay perfect for that 10 years unless you continually maintain small procedures, microneedling, regular facials, uh, adding little bits of volume to uh, uh, you know areas that we lose it. So you know, I think uh, as far as the goal for me in every facelift, I always say, I want you to look really good for someone who's five years younger than you. Because if you look really good for someone for your age, it's usually you're at least three years younger, right? You look three years younger. So that's, uh, you know, a total. If you look really good for someone five years younger than you, automatically you're eight years younger. So I think that's realistic, eight to 10 years. Yeah, I I agree. Um, And it's interesting what you just said, because I've seen some of your patients that you did 10 years ago and they still come to the office. And and it's what's great is you've set them up with a post-operative regimen to maintain their results. And that's the key. The key is just like if I do a tummy tuck on someone, um, if you maintain and you stay in good shape, man, you're going to look great. You got to keep yourself looking good. You, you have to make sure that if you're going to go in the sun to Saint-Tropez that you put on or to Tallahassee, um, <laughs> you, you can, you, you, you. The vacation destination of Tallahassee. <laughs> exactly. I mean, just wear your sunscreen, use your moisturizer, come and get your regular Botox so you don't get more wrinkles. If you do that, I think your facelift will last for a significantly, you know, long period of time. Um, it will never be like immediately after surgery 10 years later, but it'll still look good. I have one last question that someone sent. Awesome. Um, it says, dear docs, what can I do about my man boobs? <laughs> Claude from Los Angeles. Claude, listen, Claude, you are not alone. This is actually a very common uh, affliction, we'll say. And gynecomastia, uh, which is the medical term for that, is is extremely common. It can start in your teen years. It's usually due to hormone surges, um, usually resolves by the end of post-pubertal uh, ages. But sometimes it can remain. Sometimes it's unilateral, meaning on one side. Sometimes it's bilateral. Sometimes it has to do with your weight. So there are uh, multiple different ways of approaching this, and there's a grading system. So Before you get into it, mm-hmm. can you take care of this non-invasively? Well, it depends. Um, I would say uh, as far as non-invasively, first of all, we have to rule out the, that there's any other medical cause. And so, you know, obviously we want to make sure there's no endocrine abnormality that is causing this. Let's say that aside, Sometimes what we can do is even use some of the non-invasive machines to try to, uh, you know, if it's due to fat reduction. If this is true gynecomastia, this is glandular disorder, then I don't think there's any non-invasive way of treating the issue. Usually there's three different uh, categories or we'll say grades of this. The first one is you feel kind of a little nodule underneath the, the nipple or areola itself. The second is you may feel that nodule, but there's a little bit of breast tissue along with it. 
Um, and so uh, then there's a third grade, which is really uh, where it looks almost like you have breasts and it's all glandular and fatty tissue. And obviously the treatment for each one of these is going to be different. Um, you know, and obviously each one involves some type of surgery. Whether it's direct excision, meaning through tiny hidden incision where you actually remove the little discus of tissue, or it's a combination of liposuction and excising that tissue, or uh, simply liposuction with radiofrequency to help tighten some of the skin. These are all options. Sometimes it is so severe that we actually have to perform almost a mastectomy on a male um, in order to remove all that tissue and excess skin. And, and most of the time, the, the third um, uh, and probably the most severe kind of gynecomastia is most of the time it's in people that have, have gained a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's significantly worse. But if you feel like your breasts are just a little big, you could see when you put a t-shirt on, it's an easy fix. I did one last, I think it was last week on a 50-year-old guy who said that he's back in the dating world, um, made tiny little incisions. And like, like John just said, I used body tight. I used radio frequency heat so I can remove all of the breast and fat and really tighten the skin. And he looks great. So there's a, this is a relatively simple way to do this. The surgery takes between an hour and two hours. You go home the same day and you're pretty much out doing everything about a week or two later. So I hope that answered that, Claude. We look forward to seeing you in our office since you're local. (laughs) Come on by. Well, listen, I think that wraps up our episode today. I really want to thank you guys for sending in these questions. And for our listeners that are out there right now, keep it up. Send us some more uh, pressing questions. We'd be happy to answer them uh, and educate you all. And remember, podcast at beverlyhillsmd.com. Dot com is the email for all of these questions. We'll probably do this once every eight episodes or so because it is fun. Definitely. Uh, thanks again. Remember, this is Forever Young. I'm Dr. John Lakey. I'm Dr. Payman Daniel Poor. You can listen to us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to your podcast. Stay tuned for the next one. Peace. Take care. From iHeartRadio, Forever Young is a Cavalry Audio Golden Hippo production. We are produced by Brandon Morgan. Josh Windish does our editing and mixing. Payment and I serve as executive producers along with Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.